Well, good morning. And uh, I want to start with a story. Is, uh, is Timmy in here? Timmy Jackson? He's building some stuff. Yeah. Oh, there he is. Timmy and Johnny in the back. Just say hi. Good looking boys. Both single. No big deal. Um, they, uh, they picked up some... Ooh, that's my computer. That's also going to be fine. That might not be. Thank you. If you want... Yeah. It's all right. That was, that was just the Lord getting our attention because this story is going to be so good. It's going to lure you in. It's always like a little bit of a, yeah, that might be okay. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Um, so Timmy and Johnny, they got, they got here early at my house this morning to bring um, these amazing storage lockers in. And uh, I just give a shout out. Brought a pickup truck, hard lifting, working men. But, but here's, here's um, just a little funny interaction. We sometimes talk, Timmy and I, about about uh, different things. He's like an expert in sound and uh, all dynamics worship. And, and so we were, we were interacting with some just things that we could kind of play with and tweak and so forth. And so he sends me this worship set. And, and as I do, I, I, I told you last week, and I've mentioned this before, I like to go running with sunglasses on in case my eyes start leaking because of something the Lord might be revealing to me as I run. He tends to do that. And then people just think it's, it's sweat and it's, it's kind of a private moment and, and whatever else. So uh, basically, I like, I like to ball my eyes out while I run. But this week, I didn't have time. So I was on my, my new rower that, that I got from my parents over COVID. Anyone have a rower? Enjoy rowing? Yeah, I see that hand. Thank you. Amen. Um, so <laughs> I've, I've been getting into rowing a little. I mean, I'm slow. But as I was rowing, I was listening to this worship set that Timmy had sent me, just literally in order that I would pick up on, on some dynamics of, of sound, basically. And then, uh, as, as people do during worship sets, this, this lady from, from the UK shares this testimony. And then the tears start flowing. So I want to share that little, it's kind of a testimony that leads into our subject today. Do you mind if I share that? Okay, cool. So basically she started talking about how her father needs a miracle. And, and I feel like I want to step over this thing. And I might come back, but it just feels weird back there. Okay. So her father needs a miracle. And, and so she's, she's getting emotional. And she didn't share what exactly it was, but he's obviously very sick. And in the midst of that, she, he had written a letter to her. She has five kids. We have five kids. Um, so it, just, it was hitting chords. And, and so she goes, her dad writes to her and, and says, Hannah, um, I, I, don't, I don't want your kids to pray for my healing. I don't want them to be disappointed. Obviously, the, the health issue is a big one. And she goes, it was, it was heavy stuff, that coming from her dad. And, and then um, she goes, I'm processing this. And we go to a, just a prayer night. And she has a 12-year-old son, one of her sons. And, and he gets, he gets kind of nudged by a six-year-old little boy. And that six-year-old little boy um, comes up and goes, hey, does anyone in your family need healing? And she goes, and, he, and her 12-year-old goes, um, you know, as a 12-year-old, nope. Thinking like immediate family or whatever a 12-year-old thinks. And then the six-year-old goes, not your granddad? And he goes, nope, because... They don't call him granddad. UK, I guess there's a different thing. They call him pops or something like that. And he goes, the six-year-old, isn't he in a wheelchair? 
and the, the 12-year-old all of a sudden goes, that week, grand, Grandpa had gone to a wheelchair. All of a sudden, it dawned on him. He goes, yes, yes, Pops needs healing. So the, the six-year-old starts praying over Grandpa with the 12-year-old. And she goes, on the way home, the 12-year-old, her son, tears streaming down his face. She goes, Mom, it's as if he knew him. It's as if he knew him. And she goes, he, he, my, grand, my dad, his grandpa would dance around the living room, put on a bunch of classical music and dance with the kids. He was just great with the kids. And, and one of the things the little boy started praying over, over the grandpa was, um, was that he would get out of his chair and dance with them. And went on and on and on. And, and the, the 12-year-old's response is, it was if he knew him. And there's not a question in his mind that that kid knows God. But what is it that the people that hear from God, whether you're a six-year-old boy, 50-year-old man, or a 90-year-old grandpa, what is it that we really know? And the reality is, is that these moments where, where someone just so tangibly reads our mail in our deepest moment of need. How do we tap into a way of life that is just always sensing and feeling and looking for opportunities? And, and even so, can we just be humbled at the reality that oftentimes God is pursuing us and we say, nope, 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 we think it's not for us. Our inclination is always not to receive the way the Father's pursuing us. And it, and this mom felt for her, one of the aspects of this testimony was, do not protect your children from disappointment. Now weigh that with some salt. <laughs> Please. But there's a reality of how are we raising a community of people? What kind of culture are we establishing? Are we going around, and this is what challenges me as a pastor. I, I feel like I've got a weight of responsibility of how people are. What kind of, 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 of safety nets and boundaries and people's hearts and souls and all these dynamics, right? But sometimes the father's like, when you protect from disappointment, and especially kids, if you do not teach kids how to wrestle with disappointment, with doubt, with shame, with questions, you do not teach them how to know God. They already know how to wrestle with disappointment when they know God. You teach a child how to know God. They will know how to deal with disappointment. It's the first step. And I feel for us it's an invitation. Receive like children again. I learn emotional health from my kids all the time. Oftentimes I'm trying to keep my kids from disappointment, and my kids, by the Holy Spirit, are trying to teach me how to deal with disappointment. <laughs> a little bit of a tension in our family. Thank you, CC, for teaching me that lesson once again. You got over that in two minutes. I thought you were going to die. Now you're completely in love again. I wish I had that capacity to engage with my emotions like they do. Do not protect your children from disappointment. Have them engage with the living God. We try to keep kids protected, but they can teach us how to deal with disappointment and potential disappointment. In the church, in the world, in the city, we need to not be afraid to know God this way. 
we need to not be afraid to invite our children to know God in this way. So that's the invitation today. The choice is ours. But that phrase, it's as if he knew him. Today's uh, topic is the prophetic imagination. And what is the prophetic imagination? Uh, it might be many things, but it's at, it's at least a couple things. And I want to start with a quote by Walt Disney himself, the great theologian. Walt Disney said this. He says, every child is born blessed with a vivid imagination. But just as a muscle grows flabby with disuse, so the bright imagination of a child pales in later years if he ceases to exercise it. We've got to use our imaginations. And as believers, that imagination isn't just an imagination. It's a prophetic one. And a prophetic one at least does a few things. It assumes that you actually know God, the prophetic imagination. It pursues the wisdom of God. It assumes you actually can understand God when he speaks and that you can actually speak his language or at least learn it. You know how God speaks if you have a prophetic imagination and you learn to listen to what he says and how he thinks, the kinds of things that are from him and not from him. My sheep hear his voice, the stranger's voice, I will not listen. You know how God feels. You know how to discern or learn to discern where your thoughts are coming from. That's all in the prophetic imagination. You can actually train your thoughts, discipline your thoughts. Your imagination ultimately attracts what it values. What does your imagination spend time valuing? That's what it's attracting. Our prophetic imagination is an invitation to value the things, to hunger after the things that are going to form us, shape us mold the spheres of influence around us and pass it on to a generation. The prophetic imagination is an active imagination. It's not just daydreaming about angels or spirit beings. It's about being on the offensive. It's about hungering for the activity of heaven, feasting on testimony, on thanksgiving, on remembering what he's done. It's looking for a target to use the breath of God, the voice of God for. It has a security system, the imagination of the prophetic. The word of God sets a boundary. This is the Father's voice and what he's like. That's what he's given us in the scriptures that go back thousands of years that testify to this is what the people of God have said. This is the standard of God's voice and the testimony of him among men and women. If anything triggers something outside this testimony that's held true through ancient to modern times by countless documentary, uh, countless historical resources of all the saints. If anything compromises this, I know where to put it. It goes outside how he speaks. It goes outside the nature of God. But at its most basic level, the prophetic imagination starts with knowing God. May we be the kinds of people that people walk away going. It's as if they know him. So I, I, want to, I want to do something this morning. I want, I want you to start to be aware of how you pick up on God's presence, God's voice, God being with you. If this is familiar to you in the past, I just feel like there is a greater invitation to awaken what has maybe gone asleep. If this is brand new to you, or, or you've been kind of uh, triggered by how the church has abused this sort of thing, I want to invite you to not press in to a realm because of abuses, but to say because of abuse, we're going to resist non-use, 
We are going to pursue correct use, and we're going to be the kind of people that lay a foundation that has the boundaries that God puts in place so that we can safely go after things and take risk. So that when we can discern the still small voices of how he's moving, we've got something to say. We don't hold back. What was so amazing on Thursday night, we want to invite everyone to Thursday nights. If they're not able to come, totally get it. That's why we're doing this series on Sunday morning too. But, but one of the things that's been so fun is that we get a chance to practice with one another. And I've done these kinds of things you know, many times, and I realize that what happens when I don't actively use the prophetic gift, I, I start to get lazy with it, and I start to get kind of, I, I'm not as sharp, right? And, and so we were, we were just playing these prophetic games, and, and, and uh, the shops had a bunch of just objects. This is in order to practice, to give people a practical example. So we had these, these objects laying on the table. And you could just, like, go up and see, maybe is anything highlighted to you, and just grab it or just look at it and go, like, okay. And now I'm going to use that as a picture, and I'm going to pray over somebody else, asking God to give me something encouraging, comforting, or strengthening for them. Very simple. And, and so um, uh, one, one of the, the people on our group, ha, uh, he had a little baby, so he couldn't get up. So I grabbed something for him, a little bow. And, and he, he started using this bow to pray over the guys in our group. And, and what, was so, what was so amazing was this, just this simple word. And, and what he started using, he started using things he knew about Scripture. Uh, Christ is the anchor. And the Bible talks about this thing about, about three strands, not easily broken, right? And he goes, I feel like the main strand that you have to focus on is just that Christ one. And there's all these other beautiful pieces, far more than three. And you can maybe feel overwhelmed about those, but if you just anchor on this one, that thing's never coming apart. Super simple. Biblically sound. Really encouraging. And then I sat with it. I'm like, Phew. I thought we were just playing games. And that was like right where my soul needed it. Whether you're, whether you're a six-year-old that's got a life-changing word for a dying grandpa. Or you're just looking at an object trying to encourage someone with something that's, that's fused through the lens of Scripture. We've got a prophetic imagination that is the gift that Paul says, you must hunger after this more than any other. Why? Because it will bring comfort, it will bring encouragement, and it will bring strength like nothing else. Like nothing else. I've been humbled at the reality that we do not, oftentimes out of fear, out of, fear, out of laziness, out of many other kinds of maybe good reasons, we do not go after this gift. If we establish this gift as the most natural, as what Paul says is the greatest gift, if we establish that in our homes, in our lives, in our church. The person of Jesus is going to be what comes to the surface, not people, not flashiness. Not like, hey, remember that time someone read my mail? Those are cool. No one cares about that when they're on their deathbed. I just feel that there's this, this holy kind of just purging of everything that's, that's not of God. And you know who's not afraid of this gift? Him, because he gave the gift. It can make us nervous, and we should be nervous. In fact, when these things are working well, 
It says in the book of Acts, the early church, that none dared join them lightly because there was this holy awe and wonder about the activity of God happening among the people. And it starts with the fact that these people know God and they hear his voice. Say amen to that. Be good. All right, amen. All right. So I think I kind of already did a summary of what we're doing, but we want, we want to have this summer. It's an invitation of two things. Invitation to build this prophetic culture as a family. Anyone can build it in their own lives. But when it happens in a community of people, a different kind of thing happens. Uh, you can establish um, safety, trustworthiness, honor, love among two people in a relationship. But how much, power, how much more powerful is it when you start to see that kind of dynamic take place in an overflow of a community of people? That is the image of what the church is meant to be. He starts with this marriage analogy God does. But then he, he, he wants it to spew out towards the people. And so the invitation is build this culture with us. Press in. Start with what you can do daily. Put a journal by your bed. Remember your dreams. Uh, get up and actually ask the Lord, what's, what's going on today? And what do I need to be sensitive to? Do it as you go to bed. Do it at each meal. Start to be sensitive. And then commit to a season of fresh growth. Commit to it. Say, if I have one thing that I'm doing this summer, I'm going to grow in the language of God. I'm going to remember who I am, what I have access to, and how to hear. And I promise you, you will be strengthened, you will be encouraged, and you will be comforted. And coming out of a season where over half the population is in clinical depression, we have to be a people that allow the voice of God to raise our spirits. It's really hard to be in a state where, where the creator of the universe is speaking life and love and hope and purpose over you than to be depressed. Depression is hopelessness and purposelessness. And God has nothing but hope and purpose that he fuses into our bones. His entire word is, is aching for you to take hold of, of what he has said over you. And yet he's a God that feels your pain. The, the book of Hosea, Hosea's a prophet. And I wasn't actually planning to get into the prophets in this series. Uh, for one reason is because we're trying to specifically get at the reality of how do we as individuals use the prophetic gift. And so looking in the New Testament mostly is how we're looking at how does the New Testament, New Covenant Church do this? At the same time, there's some powerful stuff in the prophets. And I want one verse today. One verse from Hosea 6.6, and it goes like this. Hosea says, For I desired loyal love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Just one verse. Okay, we're done. So here's what Hosea, what's going on with Hosea. Hosea's a prophet, and the, uh, an Old Testament prophet. And the Lord tells him uh, to marry a prostitute. Super weird. And when you, take, when you take an Old Testament prophet and then you try to make, like, personal application, that can get super weird. Okay. Context is huge. We don't have time to get into all the context at the moment. There's not a single rabbi, Jewish rabbi, that would apply that, that Hosea married a prostitute and start instructing his people to marry prostitutes. Okay. So I think context is a big deal. So if someone starts questioning the word of God around things like that, uh, I like to bring up things of that nature. Okay. The knowledge of God. This knowledge of God, we think of it as intellectual. 
but, but this, this scholar Abraham Heschel and, and Skip Moen point out this. Hosea coins this expression, the knowledge of God. It, it goes something like, da'ath Elohim. The translation is, in our English translation, the knowledge of God. But it doesn't do it justice to the prophetic sense of what Hosea desires the audience to receive. That's because yada, where this word knowledge comes from, as in, like, think Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada. Had nothing to do with this, but that's kind of where the phrase is Jewish. Seinfeld's Jewish. Okay, so yada, now you're not going to stop thinking about that. Yada means to know and has a much wider range of meaning than our contemporary knowing. In many ancient languages, to know involves the full range of the human being, the emotions, the intellect, the will. And in Hebrew, there's no distinction between head knowledge and heart experience. Let me say that again. In Hebrew, there's no differentiation between head knowledge and heart experience. So when, when the Lord invites you to know something, they don't actually consider that you know it by understanding. Your heart has to experience it. Big deal. Heschel suggests that yada includes an act involving concern, inner engagement, dedication, or an attachment to a person. It also means to have sympathy, pity, or affection for someone. There are several significant examples where yada takes on one of these other meanings. Hosea's statement is one of these. Unless we see the full range of yada, we won't grasp the startling pronouncement of Hosea. We will reduce his statements to a matter of correct doctrine rather than a plea for something far greater. Are you ready for that? Here's what it goes. Hosea is the prophet of God's broken heart. Every prophet usually exposes something about what God is like, even if they do it in error. Jonah did it in error. He had a terrible attitude. He resisted God. He goes and tells this horrible word to the people of Nineveh, and then they translate it to being, maybe this God that you speak of, Jonah just goes, you're all going to die. And they go, well, maybe he's not really like that. We got, they got convicted. They felt the breath of God on Jonah's ugly words to them. And they repented, not because Jonah gave them the option. Because Jonah only saw in part, because prophets don't get the full, they don't get the full character of God often. That's why sometimes the most prophetic people are very difficult people to get along with. Not always. I'm not making a rule. But they can be rough around the edges. So, so Hosea is the prophet of God's broken heart. He marries a prostitute named Gomer who continually wanders into unfaithfulness. Imagine Hosea. God says, marry a prostitute. I'm like, okay, I trust you, God. And then he marries a prostitute, and she continues to do prostitute things. And he's like, Here's, here's what God does. Hosea gives this marriage analogy to emphasize something of distress, disgust, anger, and an eventual heart-sickening betrayal over Israel's idolatrous adultery. In the Old Testament, God, God used the voice of the prophets to expose something of his family Israel. And in this case, Hosea's role is to expose something of the family, which was adultery. God considered what Israel was doing like adultery. And the message was not God condones adultery or God loves marrying prostitutes or being a prostitute is totally fine if you're married to a prophet or any weird way you could try to take this translation. The message is very clear, and it's this. God feels it. Hosea's message, we have a God that understands your broken heart. 
and God feels it. He feels the hurt. He feels the humiliation, the heaviness, the hopelessness, the horrific consequences of seeing the one he loves to the depths of his being turn her back on him and engage in relations with other lovers. That's the message of Hosea. Hosea goes on and he gives terms that attempt to paint the real picture of the circumstances from God's point of view. What does Hosea do? Hosea uses his life's pain to commune with the voice of the living God and to paint a picture for an entire family, nation of people that are inviting the nations of the world into their experience and painting the picture of what the one true God is really like. He's not like these idolatrous other gods. It's like this. He feels you. He feels you. And what is missing is that Israel has no sympathy for God. In other words, da'ath Elohim, knowledge, yada. It is feeling as God feels. Israel does not suffer the pain of separation. Israel does not weep over lost love. Israel does not agonize over the fate of the most dear one. Israel has no heart for God, and that is ultimately God's greatest sorrow. It's relational. The connection's been compromised. The intimacy severed. So Hosea then confronts us with a terrible spectacle, a people of God's own choosing, a people he absolutely refuses to give up on, care so little for how God feels that they are willing to engage in intercourse with God's enemies. They spurn God. They dishonor him. They shove it in his face while he weeps over their stupidity, their headlong rush to self-destruction, and their callous insensitivity. They're becoming animals, corrupt animals, in their pursuit of permissive anti-human life, and God cries for their loss. Summarize the book of Hosea right there. So this... This yada, da'ath Elohim, this knowing God, it's not about information. It's about feeling the way God feels. Israel didn't lack any information. Neither do we. We have plenty of information about God. But what, what turned Israel away was their insensitivity. They have no empathy. And what about us? How many of us are in this place? How many of us feel God's feelings with us, that he's weeping with us, that he's crying with us, agonizing with us? And how many of us really know God? When you see who he really is from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New, he's not a different God. There's different circumstances and context and history happening. He's the same God, and he's inviting you to know him. Chris Valentin gave uh, this, this talk a while ago, and, and he, he quotes this guy um, who gave uh, a TED Talk. And he references the Tower of Babel. And in it, he, he, he talks about the, the complexities of language. And he references apes, and it, and it was, I want to read you a, a snippet of it. But what was so interesting is that this, this scientist named Mark Pagel essentially says this. He says that God scattered the people at Babel by giving them different languages. He confused them by giving them all kinds of different tongues. And this leads to the wonderful irony that our languages exist to prevent us from communicating. At least that was his hypothesis, that our languages might actually exist to prevent us from communicating. Interesting. Even today, we know that there are words we cannot use, phrases we can't say, because if we do, we might be jailed, killed, 
or at least ridiculed at least. And all of this is from a puff of air emanating from our mouths. Just a word. Now, all of this fuss about a single one of our traits tells us something worth explaining here. And that's how and why does this remarkable trait even, what he says, the scientists, evolve? And why did it evolve only in our species? Now, it's a little bit of a surprise that to get an answer to that question, we have to, to go to a tool in the chimpanzees. And right before you start thinking that, oh, another scientist equating humans to chimpanzees, just wait for a second hear what he says. These chimpanzees, they use tools. And we take that as a sign of their huge intelligence. But if they were really intelligent, why would they use a stick to extract termites from the ground rather than a shovel? It kind of gives a picture. There's chimpanzees. They take a stick and they take termites out of the ground. Why don't they just use a shovel? Valid question. If they were really intelligent, why, why wouldn't they crack open nuts with a rock? Why wouldn't they just go to a shop and buy a bag of nuts uh, that somebody had already opened up for them like we do? He's asking these questions. Why don't they do that? And the reason they don't do that is that they lack what psychologists and anthropologists call social learning. They seem to lack the ability to learn from others by copying or imitating or simply watching. As a result, they can't improve on others' ideas or learn from their mistakes. They cannot benefit from others' wisdom. They can't learn to come when a ball's there. Chimpanzees lack social learning. They cannot benefit from others' wisdoms. And so they, they just do the same thing over and over again. And this scientist says this, not a believer. He goes, in fact, if we go away for a million years and come back and watch the chimpanzees, they're still going to be trying to get little termites out of the sand, out of the dirt, with a little stick instead of a shovel. And the takeaway is this. We build as humans, as humankind, as those created in God's image, image bearers, imago Dei. We build upon knowledge because we can communicate with the language of our creator. If he created everything, how, how beautifully not ironic is it that we have built upon knowledge over the course of just a few thousand years? And ultimately, that's because we can communicate with the language of our creator. And in the midst of us trying to discern God's language, we see throughout all of biblical history these tension points, trying to discern what God is saying, those in the family and outside the family. Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream. He realizes that this dream could change his life, and yet he, he needs an interpretation. And here comes Joseph, who knows God. Changes the course of not just that king, but an entire nation, because God's people can speak into mysteries. They can understand riddles. They can discern what the creator of the universe is saying and doing, not because he's trying to trick you, but because he's trying to invite you in to know him. Egypt eventually rejects this entire invitation. Jesus even uses this, this same word, yada, or to know, in the New Testament. The Greek word is gnosko, but ultimately it's the same translation of yada when he talks about false prophets. He goes, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then he'll tell them plainly, depart 
I never knew you. That knew, same word. I didn't know you. You know what, what bothers me? Is that he wasn't saying all those miracles, all those, all those exorcisms, all those impressive things were bad. He said that you could, you could do all those things because I've given authority to do them. You can go about doing them and still not know me. Can we be the kind of people that pursue the works of God, but never at the expense of knowing him? Valentin goes on to give this example where he started gathering some of the most prophetic people in their church way back in the early days of his ministry. And, and they started reading books together. Um, one was, was user-friendly prophecy. Another was Hippo in the Garden that was about dreams and visions. And then they went on to, to get a book, uh, a dream book, a symbols of dreams and visions type of book. I love those kind of books. My wife really loves those books. We've probably got 10 of them at home. And we condone them. They can be a very helpful tool. But this is what was interesting. After a couple months of using these symbols and, and dream books, they found that what they didn't need was what? They didn't need a relationship with God anymore. If you could just have a dream and go, hmm, what does that mean? Ah, that's what that means. Hmm. Here you go, Betsy. There's your dream interpretation. And I'm not saying that's how all people do it. That's not even saying how they do it. But, but what, what he was saying was that the temptation is, even when you take things that might be good, standardized guides, the temptation is that it draws you out of knowing him in the process. And the invitation to any encounter with God in the miraculous or in the prophetic is always an invitation to know him, not just to show off, not just to play fun Christian games. When you start playing fun Christian games for the sake of the game and not knowing him, you start to get off. Your heart posture starts to get lacking. This is what was so amazing for them in this, in this experience. When they started using these books, you know what they noticed? This is just an example. I'm not saying this is going to happen to you. The symbols in their dreams started changing. Meaning that they get together and share, their, and share their dreams. And when they started using the book as a guide, it didn't work. Why? All of a sudden, when they would see something like a snake, all of a sudden it became a salvation stick because you would put it on a stick and it would be an image of salvation instead of what? The devil. Black turned into God being hidden in the mysteries. And white became an angel of light. So, so all of a sudden, the, the images, the colors, the pictures that are supposed to be one way, God's invitation is always to know him. So in his kindness, he actually changed the symbols. Why? Because the invitation, he understood their hearts are good. They want to know me. And they're trying to use the resources to do a better job. But I want to see if they can really discover that the process is actually about invitationally connecting with me and knowing me deeper. And that book will never get you there. It'll be a helpful tool. It'll never get you there. Can we be the kind of people that pick up on those nuances of the language of God? When you know someone, you know how the, in, the, the slightest little change of tone means something. <sighs> when I hear my wife do that, I know what that means. And I know what it means if she's there versus over there versus over here. God wants you to know him. 
All right. Let's apply this. Uh, worship team, you can start to come up. And I just want to say a couple things as we close and, and respond. I want us to focus today on a, a renewed hunger for the prophetic imagination. And even, if, even as you're just receiving this, feel free to close your eyes and just get in a place of just safety and rest and receiving from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just pray that as we learn to hear your voice, as we discern the language of God, as we build a prophetic culture, where we, may we be the type of people that hear not for information, but we hear so that we can know you. And I just, I just feel as we're, as we're processing our own life and our own stuff, maybe even just be present with how, how do you screw this up? I've been aware that this isn't God coming down with an iron fist. He's sitting there so excited to exchange with you. And then I realized, but I, I mess things up and I screw things up all the time. Not like in like I'm a horrible, miserable person. In the sense of like, where are my missed opportunities? Be present for that. Where are you missing opportunities to know God? Where are you missing them in your own schedule? Where are you missing them to pull them from the people that you do life with? Where are you missing them to hear and to think and to imagine and to dream creatively? Where are you missing the impressions on your heart? We're going to go after this, this week on Thursday and, and into the coming weeks. There's all the different ways. The, the scriptures are full of endless ways that the Lord speaks and moves. I just pray we will not be overwhelmed by this process. We may be humbled. I pray a stirring in every single one of our spirits to be awakened to the prophetic imagination. To be awakened. To be awakened. Why don't you stand? And, and as we transition, I just, I just want to leave us with six, six keys to hearing and developing this thing. And put your hands on your hearts if you would. And just say that, that I'm going to press in to these six things over the coming weeks. Number one, spending time in his presence. It takes time to learn the nuances of language. I covenant with you, Father God, I will spend time with you. I repent from how I get distracted. And I turn from a mindset that says my life is too full, my kids are too crazy, my job is too whatever. I will prioritize time with you. Number two, I will focus on your purposes and not mine. I believe that we will discover the greatest purpose to be alive when we can ultimately lay down our own purposes and find his. He's not an egomaniac. His purposes will unleash yours. I commit afresh the fresh purposes of yours in laying mine down. Number three, thank you that you challenge me to continually ask. Thank you that you only say yes because you're for me. I commit to trusting you again. 
to your goodness, to your life. Any image of you that I have that does not represent who you are. I put it aside so that I can receive from a good father afresh. Number four, growing towards love. The ultimate aim of this is about the heart of God and the prophetic voice of God is unleashing his love. Remember that as you receive his voice and as you give his voice to others. It's about love, his love, divine love, not human love, divine love. And the last two, commit to doing a a continual body check. What is it that I can be picking up on how you're moving? As I wake, as I sleep, as I transition my day from a meal or to a coffee or to a meeting or to a new room, how can I be aware of how he's moving, speaking, and putting impressions on me? And then finally, I just pray for a fresh love of your word. Spend more days in it than you spend outside of it. It will change your life. As we just respond in some worship, I just feel one word to just minister into. That's awake. Pray over your own over your own spirit right now to awaken to the language and voice of God. Awake. Awake. Your prayers over yourselves and each other are the same prayers that the city needs. The world needs. Start with one. Awake. Awake.